Well, good morning, everybody. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 30. Exodus, chapter 30. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful, Lord. I'm grateful for the godly leadership that you've given this congregation. I'm grateful, Lord, for just the wonderful participation of your people in the work, Lord, that you're doing in and through this, this church. And, Lord, just, just continue it, Lord. Now, God, as we turn our attention to your word, would you please feed us and guide us and lead us? This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 30 and chapter 31, they deal with some unfinished business from earlier chapters in the book of Exodus. You see, earlier in starting at chapter 25, there was a command for Moses and the children of Israel to build the tabernacle. By the way, I'm just fascinated by that, that when Moses went up on the mountain to spend 40 continuous days with God, that God did not give him more laws, more rules. Instead, what God gave him was the outline and the structure and the center for worship, because God was concerned to build and to cultivate and to encourage worship among the people of Israel. So, in all of that, God gave Moses the plans for building the tabernacle and its furnishings and for consecrating the priests that would serve in that tabernacle. Now, most all of that was described in Exodus chapters 25 through 29. Now we're left with these two final chapters, not of the book, but of this section, Exodus chapters 30 and 31, where we have described for us a few additional things relevant to the tabernacle. And you might ask the question, well, why are these things described here and why weren't they described earlier, like in chapter 26 or chapter 27? And I can tell you with great confidence, I don't know. But here they are in front of us. And it can be organized fairly easily. In these two chapters, Exodus 30 and 31, we have described for us two furnishings for the tabernacle, an altar of incense and a labor of washing. We'll look at that in a moment. We have two substances that were used in the operations of the tabernacle, holy anointing oil and holy incense. And then finally, third, We have two essential ingredients for the work of the tabernacle. And that would be resources in the form of silver and people in the form of workmen. And so we're going to take a look at those six things, two by two by two. Let's take a look at the first two, two furnishings for the tabernacle. And the first one is the altar of incense described, Exodus chapter 30, beginning at verse 1. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. So very plainly, the command comes in verse 1 of chapter 30. 
make an altar to burn incense on. And then are given the dimensions and the materials. And up on our screen, you can see sort of a model's description of what it sort of looked like according to those dimensions and proportions. If you want an idea of the size of the altar of incense, this pulpit that I'm standing before right now is a pretty, it's pretty close in size to what the altar of incense would have been. It wasn't huge. But it stood right there in the tabernacle. It was covered with gold with a core made out of wood. It was also carried with this system of rings and poles that other furnishings for the tabernacle were made upon. Now, what I want to point out most pointedly is what what do you use this for? Nice piece of furniture put in the tabernacle. What do you use it for? Starting now at verse six. And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So what did they do with this altar of incense? Well, first of all, this went inside the tabernacle in the first room of the tabernacle that we call the holy place. This is to be distinguished from the second room of the tabernacle that we call the most holy place or the holy of holies. That's what's commanded there in verse six. You shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony. There it stood. If you were to walk into the tabernacle, the altar of incense would be right in front of you. Behind the altar of incense would be the veil. Behind the veil would be the ark of the covenant and the holy of holies. And what did they do with it? Well, every day, Aaron or one of his sons, the priests of Israel, would go into that tabernacle and they would carry a censer, sort of a golden pot or a brass pot that was filled with coals and they would have a handful of incense. And to tell you the truth, I don't know exactly how the altar would be used. I don't know if the coals would be put directly on the altar and then the incense on top of the coals. I don't know if the censer would be put on top of the altar, but there'd be some relation where on that altar was offered incense that would burn before the Lord. It was to be done every day. It was to be done at least twice a day. And it was to be done continually throughout the history of Israel. You say, well, great. What does this speak to us of? Well, incense throughout the scriptures is a powerful picture of prayer. It's sweet smell. Now, look, I've smelled some pretty stinky incense in my time, but there is some good smelling incense out there. It's sweet smell shows us how God regards prayer. If you've ever smelled incense and you think that's beautiful, what a beautiful, pleasing smell that is. That's how your prayers smell to God. He loves them. I I mean, if you pray in faith, If you pray to God, the father, through God, the son, by the empowering and the leading of God, the Holy Spirit, it smells so sweet before. And you could just see how it's a very natural picture. 
Think of the smoke of incense rising up in the tabernacle and going up towards the sky. It's like our prayers drift up to heaven. We send them from earth up to heaven to pray to God. And it smells so sweet before God. Has God smelled you lately? Has he smelled the sweetness of your prayers before him? Has he smelled that beautiful thing? Or is it just pretty much no smell coming from you lately? God wants it to be this beautiful, pleasing aroma from your life of prayer. Again, they were to deal with this altar of incense every morning, every evening. as a continual statute, a sort of a picture of how dedicated and separated our prayer life is to be unto the Lord. This is the purpose and the picture of the altar of incense. Now, one more thing before we talk about the second piece of furniture. Every piece, every aspect of the tabernacle in some way speaks to us of Jesus. How does this speak to us of Jesus? Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible tells us that Jesus ascended into heaven, enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, that he ever lives to pray for you. He ever lives to intercede for you. And if you understand that, that should cheer your heart this morning. Now, I... I am an unbelievably blessed man for many reasons, but I'll tell you one of them. Many people pray for me. Many of you pray for me. And I appreciate that so much. And I want more of you to pray for me because I know whatever blessing comes forth from this pulpit, in this congregation, it's not just, you know, what effort I give or what all that. No, it's because God's people pray. And so I am a very blessed man and that so many of you and so many others pray for me. And I want you to know I appreciate that. But I think about it. There may be some of you, you feel quite forgotten. You wonder, does anybody pray for you? Are you forgotten on somebody's prayer list? Let me give you some sweet assurance here this morning. Jesus Christ prays for you. If you are his son, if you are his daughter, Jesus loves you and he prays before you or for you before God, the father in heaven. Doesn't that just encourage your soul to know that Jesus prayed for you today? That should give you some strength and encouragement. All right. That's the altar of incense. What's the next furnishing to speak about. Look about it here, starting at verse 17 of Exodus chapter 30. We read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base, also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, They shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to their him and his descendants throughout their generations. So verse 18 says very plainly, make a laver of bronze. A laver is like a big pool or a cauldron or a basin. Make a big basin filled with water so that Aaron and the priest can come and do their ceremonial washings. Put it in between the altar and the tabernacle so that after they're done doing that hard, sweaty, bloody ministry at the tabernacle, they can clean themselves up before they go into the actual tabernacle building. They go from the altar. They are cleansed. Then they go into the tabernacle of meeting. But notice it. It's very powerful there. Two things. First of all, verse 21 says, so they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. 
They had to be cleansed. If they were going to serve God and walk for him, they had to be washed. Now, I can't read that without echoing in my mind what Jesus said on the occasion of another washing. Do you remember Jesus? On the night that he was betrayed, the day before he would go to the cross, he got together with his disciples to commemorate what they would commemorate as a Passover meal. And as they got together with his disciples, he bowed down, he put an apron on, he put on the clothing of a servant, and he washed their feet. Now, when he got around to Peter, what did Peter say? Oh, no, Lord, you won't wash my feet. It's too humble for you to do. And what did Jesus respond to him with? These words, he said, If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. You have to let me wash your feet. You need to be washed. I'm looking out on a room full of people. By the way, I look in the mirror at one as well. But I'm looking out on a room full of people who need to be washed and washed all the time. It's not because you're particularly bad sinners. Although maybe some of you are. I'm not making that call one way or another. But I'm just saying every one of us, we come in contact with the dust and the dirt of this world. We're assaulted by the world, the flesh and the devil, and we need to be cleansed. And the provision for your cleansing is right there in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, you are in some sense right now being cleansed. Right. And I mean it literally right now, because the Bible says that one aspect of the cleansing that we enjoy from God is the washing of the water of the word. And as you give attention to the word of God, to the words on the page, and as it's explained, when what I hope is anointed preaching, I think there's a washing that God does in your life, in your heart, in your soul. You should leave here a little bit cleaner than you came with. Maybe some of you a lot bit cleaner than you came in. You see, that's the idea. There's a washing that happens as you give attention to the word of God. All right, one last thing before we talk about something else. Did you notice in the description of the labor, there's no dimensions given? All these other things, the Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Showbread, the Altar of Incense, we saw there's dimensions given. This cubit's wide, this cubit's long, this cubit's tall, on and on. No dimensions given for the washing of water, the laving. Why? Because I think God wanted it to be understood very powerfully in this symbolic sense. There's no limit to his ability to wash. That pool is big enough for everybody. Everybody. There's nobody who's too dirty where there's not enough cleansing water from Jesus Christ to cleanse you from your sin. It's available for you now. You're not too big a sinner to be washed by Jesus Christ. There's no limit to his ability to wash. All right. That's the two furnishings. Number one, the altar of incense. Number two, the labor of washing. We also talked about two substances that they needed In the working of the tabernacle, Uh, here we're going to take a look at those. Look at Exodus chapter 30, starting at verse 22. Well, from 22 to 33, it describes the making of the holy anointing oil. And I'm going to read to you verse 25, where it says, Make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. So God gave them all these ingredients and he said, mix them together and make a beautiful, holy oil. Now, verse 32 says, nor shall you make any other like it. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. In other words, this special, holy anointing oil that they were to make was not to be reproduced and sold. 
It was not to be imitated. It was not to be counterfeited. It was to be holy and for the use of the tabernacle alone. You couldn't walk in to an Israelite perfume shop and get Udi Tabernacle or something like that. It wasn't working. No, this was holy and for the Lord alone and not to be counterfeited, not to be sprinkled upon things that were unholy. This is a very interesting picture because, as you may have heard before, oil is a consistent picture in the scriptures of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And don't you find it's fascinating that God says, no, the anointing, the power, the presence of my Holy Spirit, it's holy and it's not to be counterfeited. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to be very wary of this in our day and age. Because there are those who sometimes with very good intentions will counterfeit or will imitate in the effort of human ability the working of the Holy Spirit. And I'll simply say this, that those who are the most zealous for the true and powerful operation of the Holy Spirit should be the first to speak out against such things. To say, no, this is a holy oil and it shouldn't be applied to things that are not truly of the Lord. It shouldn't be replicated by human effort or sweat, but only, only by the genuine move of the Holy Spirit. That's the one substance, the holy anointing oil. Look now, because verses 34 through 38 of Exodus chapter 30 describe the holy incense. Look at verse 35 again. It says, Make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. So the special incense for the tabernacle was made according to the same principle as the holy anointing oil. Here's these ingredients. Mix them together, but it's holy. It's sacred. It's not to be counterfeited. It's not to be imitated. And if I could just say this, this incense not only served as a beautiful and a powerful picture of prayer, it also had a very practical usage. And what do I mean by a practical usage? To put it bluntly, I think that the work of the tabernacle would stink a lot. You had sweaty hard work to perform. You had blood and dried blood everywhere. You had burning hides and innards of animals. Now, it's true. Sometimes you'd get a nice fragrant smell from a good barbecue of meat being cooked. But there were a lot of bad smells around, too. The fragrant smell of the holy anointing oil covered a lot of that bad smell. So two substances absolutely essential for the work of the tabernacle, the holy anointing oil and the holy incense. Okay, so we've covered two of our six. We've got two furnishings, the altar of incense and the labor of washing. We've got two substances. We've got the holy anointing oil and the holy incense. Now, the last set of two, notice this, two essential ingredients for the work of the tabernacle. And the first one is silver. Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, describe the silver that's needed for the ransom money. Pick it up here in Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. We read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. So God said, I'm going to tell you to take a census of the entire nation of Israel. 
Now, by the way, this was done in the book of Numbers, both at the beginning of the book of Numbers and then at the end of the book of Numbers. So it was carried out later on. But please notice this. God said, when you do it, you must receive ransom money from every individual who's 20 years old and above so that I may not plague you. And you say, well, why would God plague them at a census? What's the big deal about that? We take a census in our nation every 10 years. And I thought, well, maybe our maybe our taxes are the ransom money or something like that. No, I don't know. But listen, why would God possibly be offended at a census of Israel? Well, you have to get sort of into Hebraic thinking to understand this. In Hebraic thinking, you only count something if you own it. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you're thinking you're an Israelite shepherd, you're not supposed to go count your neighbor's sheep. Count your own sheep. They belong to you. Okay, that makes sense. But if you only count what you own, what did it say when the Israelites would count their own people? It would be a way of saying, we own them. Later on in 2 Samuel chapter 24, King David conducted an unauthorized, unredeemed census of the people of Israel. And God brought a plague. Why? Because it was an expression of pride, if I could say that, in David, where he looked over the kingdom and he said, I own this, I can count it. Ladies and gentlemen, God always wants leaders among his people to understand, you don't own it. Jesus owns it. God owns it. It's his purchased possession. And if account is necessary, you better make special provision to remember that it belongs to the Lord and not to you. And that was the whole deal with the ransom money. Now, look at this, starting now at verse 13, how they would take the ransom money for the census. Verse 13 of Exodus 30, we read. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. I know you find that very helpful to understand that. Now you know how much a shekel is. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now notice this. Verse 14 says, Everyone that's included among you, 20 years old and above, you must take this money that marks the fact that atonement has been made for them. Now I find first in here a remarkable principle that I so want to impress upon you. Do you not see that God was communicating to all of Israel, everybody owes me? And ladies and gentlemen, that's a very important truth that I want you to remember. You owe God. Now, I don't know if you feel that way or not. Maybe some of you say, well, yes, pastor, that's so obvious. Can we move on to the next thing? The reason why I bring it up is because there are so many people in our culture who live almost every day of their life with no sense of obligation or debt to God. They don't recognize him as their creator. They don't recognize him as their sustainer. 
They don't recognize him as the one who gives them the power to do what they do and the life they live. They don't recognize him as the giver of good gifts upon the just and the unjust. They don't recognize that they actually have a debt to God. Go out today, and if you were to go over to Stern's Wharf and interview people, or go up and down State Street and interview people, and ask them, do you feel that you owe something to God? How few people would respond, yes, I do. But ladies and gentlemen, this is a very powerful thing. Whether you feel like it or not, you owe God. You owe him because he made you. You owe him because he sustains you. You owe him because you have a moral debt before him, because you've fallen short of his glorious and holy standard. Each and every one of us, we owe God. We are in his debt. And Jesus Christ provides the way that we can satisfy what we owe God. But let's begin at that starting point. We owe him. And this was a powerful way to express that to all of Israel. But the second thing I want you to notice is this. Did you see this in verse 15? It says, the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less to make atonement for yourselves. In other words, because this money was a reflection of atonement, everybody gave the same. It's not like the rich people who could afford to give far, far more, could give several shekels. No. And it's not that the poor person, oh, I don't have any shekels. No, you better come up with half a shekel. Everybody has to pay it. Everybody paid it. And each person was responsible to pay it for themselves because it was a reflection of atonement. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a powerful and glorious principle. This teaches us that everybody has the same obligation before God. And if I could put it this way, the ground is level at the cross. Oh, you think the person in this world who's high and mighty, they're successful, they're a celebrity. Maybe they're going to gather together this evening in Los Angeles at the Oscars thing and they're a celebrity and all the world knows them. Listen, that person has the same obligation before God and the same way to be made right with God as the lowest, most down and out, most wretched person that you would find on the streets of downtown Los Angeles just a few blocks away. Do you see the contrast here? Rich and poor, they still have to come to God the same way. They still have to come. And I just want to shoot away any illusion that anybody might have that there's different ways that you come to God, that there's one way for the rich and another way for the poor, that there's one way for the good and another way for the bad, that there's one way for the person who's been raised in a religious home and another person who's had no religion. No, it's all the same for us. We must all come to God through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. As I said before, the ground is level at the cross and we all come the same way. In this sense, the receiving of the half shekel ransom money, it wasn't a free will offering. It wasn't to receive the the materials to build the tabernacle. Not like that. It wasn't like the tithe that was later required. That was a proportional giving. And by the way, the New Testament reinforces this idea of proportional giving. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, that we should give in proportion to the way that we've been blessed. As a man has been blessed, so shall he give. That's a measure. That's a proportion. By the way, there's some people get very offended, that idea that we should give proportionally, that we should give according to the measure that we've been blessed. I heard a story from a pastor. It's not my story, but it's so good that I don't mind sharing it. A pastor was once teaching his congregation about this idea of proportional giving. You should give according to the measure that you've been blessed. 
And so he was giving that message, and somebody came up to him after the mercy, and they were so irate. They were so against that idea of proportional giving according to a percentage or a measure or a proportion. No, they were dead set against it. And you know what the pastor did? He just smiled really big. And I know this pastor. He has quite a smile. He smiled really big, and this is what he said. He said, well, if you don't want to give according to the measure of your blessing, then may you be blessed according to the measure of your giving. I don't know if they got it, but man, that was cold. (laughs) But look, here's the point. This is a contrast to that. This is not a proportional giving at all. This is the same for everybody because we all have this same debt before God that we need to make right. And so this money was appointed for the service of the tabernacle. Now, One other thing to look at here, this special people that God was, because the resource wasn't only silver used to build the tabernacle, but no, you also needed people. And Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 11, describes the special men that God called to build the tabernacle. Let's look at it, starting at verse 1 of Exodus 31. We read there. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with um, the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting of jewels for setting and carving wood and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholoyab, the son of Ashamach of the tribe of Dan, and I put wisdom in the hearts of all who are gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded. You see, it wasn't enough just to have the plans. It wasn't enough just to have the materials. You needed the people to make it happen. And God said, here's two men. This one man named Bezalel and the other named Ahoylab. And those two men would supervise and arrange and do the work of building the tabernacle. But did you see what it said in verse 3? This is very important. And by the way, I think that there may be somebody here this morning What I'm going to say right now is the whole reason why God has you here this morning. Look at it here in verse 3. God says this. I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. Now, please understand. These men were going to be carpenters and artisans and sculptors and fashioners of very material things. And nevertheless, God said, I'm going to fill him with my spirit. I'm going to pour out my spirit upon him so that he'll have the empowering and the wisdom and the ability to do a very practical work. This is what I want you to realize, is that God's anointing and filling of the Holy Spirit is not only for what you might think of as spiritual kind of things. Some people say, well, Pastor David, you need to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. You're going to preach. Oh, Andrea, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to lead worship. Oh, somebody else doing some other good work. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to counsel somebody or teach or serve the children or whatever it is. But do you realize that in whatever vocation or occupation God has put before you, he has an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for you in that occupation. In that what you do, whether it's something you do with your hands, whether you're painting houses, whether you're fixing cars, whether it's something you do with numbers in business, you manage money or you, you do these kind of deals or you represent houses or something, whatever it is that you do. I could just list things, but you get the picture. They say, whatever it is that you do, 
The Holy Spirit wants to fill you and enable you to do it in a way that gives glory to God and does good in this world. Now, maybe you've forgotten about that. Maybe you work up in the morning and go, well, I'm going to go work my job and I, maybe I can serve the Lord later. No, you serve the Lord today in your job. You ask him for an outpouring of your spirit so that when you're at school or you're ministering in your very own home as a homemaker, or you're doing whatever it is God has called you to do, say, yes, Lord. I want this anointing and this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on my life to do it. That is something holy and beautiful before the Lord. Well, I suppose I could wrap it up right here. We've talked about our six things, two furnishings, two substances, two ingredients. But I have one more thing for you. Look at it in Exodus chapter 31, verse 12. It might seem out of place to you, but it's not out of place at all. Look at it. Verse 12 of chapter 31. He says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Verse 13 says, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. Now here's the picture. In these commands, Chapter after chapter, chapter 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and half of chapter 31, God gave them work to do. And it was good work. It was holy work. It was glorifying to God work, but it was work to do. In the midst of all of that, God, at the end of it, says, don't you dare forget my rest in the midst of the work. That's powerful on a lot of levels. Let me just draw it to this. You have work to do in this world on a very practical level, on a spiritual level. Jesus Christ wants you to represent him in this world. He wants you to share the word and to reach the world. This is what God wants for you in your life. But please, please listen. He wants you to do it from that context of rest in Jesus Christ that he has given you. And you come here and you listen, and I'm very grateful for it. And maybe you have the message loud and clear. i got to live for God. i got to obey him. i got to serve Jesus. I want to serve Jesus. I need to do this. I need to do that. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm glad. But please, please, first and foremost, it's what Jesus Christ has done for you. It's the rest in him that he gives you. In a few moments, I'm going to pray. And then we're going we're gonna to just stay here together for another few songs of worship. I mean, you're talking about 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes of worship. When we do that together, this is my plea to you. Would you please come and consciously set yourself as you are now in the presence of Jesus and you say, Jesus, here I am at rest before you. Would you please come and minister unto me? Give me what I need. Give me the anointing I need the strengthening I need, the equipping I need. Maybe Jesus needs to come and wash some feet here this morning. You see, I want you to do great things for God. I really do. But please do it from this context of rest. God puts the Sabbath command right here so that we would all know, do it from the rest that I give you. Work and rest, both of them are important to God. Let me conclude with this. And I know I've already said that, but it's what preachers do. Verse 18. Last verse of the chapter. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, 
written with the finger of God. Moses has the two tablets, tablets of stone written with the finger of God, just like Charleston Heston came down from Mount Sinai. So Moses will come down with tablets of stone because he's been away from the camp of Israel for 40 days. Now, please, what could go wrong? It's been under the wonderful management of Aaron and her. Everything would be great. Well, we'll see about that. We'll see about it next week, won't we? Such a good text. Such a good text. But please, do not forget this. Rest and work. Jesus wants to minister to you and serve you who are weary and heavy laden. Father, that's my prayer for your people. I pray, God, that you, by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, would fill us, would serve us, would give unto us. Lord, so that we can leave here and be your men, your women, in a world that needs you and needs your love so badly. Thank you, Jesus. Move among your people now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.